Hi, Pastor John here to welcome you to our broadcast. We all know that God knows the intentions of our hearts, but can we assume that good intentions are always godly intentions? We'll see if that holds true in our sermon today, which tells the story of Jeroboam, the first king of the ten northern tribes which scripture calls Israel. Let's join our service, but I hope you'll stay to hear an important announcement at the end. I'm never really good at geography. That's why I moved here to Tennessee. Have you ever, I, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to be in verse 21 through 30. We're kind of picking up where we left off last week. But you ever, have you ever done something that you thought was a really good idea and, and you wanted to have good impact and basically had good intentions and didn't realize until after you got into it that maybe the intentions you had weren't as good as you thought they were. Uh, so I, you know, I find myself in that position before. I, I, something I want to do for God, but maybe, you know, after some reflection, I really kind of wanted to do it for myself. Uh, uh, we've got the story of that today. Um, and, and what I want you to hold on to is that Intentions can be good. They can be really good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're godly. Intentions can be good, but not godly. So last week we heard about Rehoboam and how he made the incredibly bad decisions as he was ascending the throne in Israel. And uh, we need to understand this about Rehoboam because there was a prophecy set over him prior to everything happened. But he wasn't a victim of the prophecy, but he was a victim of his own ungodliness, and God knew that that was in Rehoboam. So he was set to occupy the throne of the nation of God's people, and through his own pride, through his own selfishness, the kingdom that he'd been given began to divide. It began to splinter, fracture. Part of it was given to another. And so today we're going to hear the story of that other man. Sermon's title today is Jeroboam. It's number 15 in our series of lessons for today from the Old Testament. So the context of our passage, if you remember from last week, is that Rehoboam ran from Shechem for his life. Jeroboam has been crowned king over Israel, a brand new nation, but it's no longer one nation as it was under David, as it was under Solomon. There's now a northern kingdom, and that's the one that's ruled over by Jeroboam. There's a southern kingdom, uh, that's the one that's ruled over by Rehoboam. Uh, the northern kingdom is going to be called Israel from here on out. The southern kingdom is going to be called Judah. So just as we looked at Rehoboam last week and the major question before him was, how, what kind of king is he going to be? You know, we have that same question before us now. What kind of king is Jeroboam going to be as he leads this new nation? And with everything that he saw, I, I mean, he watched all that happen with Rehoboam. You would think that he'd be extra careful. He's had this incredible prophecy spoken over him. I'm going to give you the ten tribes to the north. And all you got to do, Jeroboam, is listen to my word, God said to him, and obey my word. And if you do that, then you, your reign, and Israel will be blessed. But he doesn't do it. He, he doesn't do it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
somebody reading the Word of God and not doing what it says? He didn't do it. And his fall from grace occurs in three spectacular steps. We're going to see what Rehoboam does, how he reacts to this, this splintering of the kingdom in verses 21 through 24. We'll see how Jeroboam acts, why, what Jeroboam does, what he does in 25 through 27. And then we'll see what Jeroboam does about all of it in 28 through 33. So, uh, naturally, Rehoboam sees what's going on and, and he wants to put everything back together. I, I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is civil war. You know, we're, we're breaking off from you. You're not going to get our taxes. You're not going to get our resources. You're not going to get the blessing of everything we had when we worked so hard and your dad took advantage of us and you told us that you were going to take advantage of it. So it's a civil war. And here's what Rehoboam does about it, starting in verse 21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now, you need, you need to read what's there. This is, uh, I mean, Rehoboam is, is mass, amassing the troops. The army's ready to go. And who's he going to fight against? This time, it's not the Moabites, not the Ammonites, not the Syrians or Assyrians. It's Israel. It's his own people. And so once Rehoboam gets out of Shechem, uh, Shechem's to the north, it's in the middle of that area where the ten tribes are, he's got to run for his life. He's become, you know, Shechem has become dangerous for him. He goes back to Judah and just rallies the forces. This is war, guys. We're not going to let, let these people just break off from us. And then this happens, but the word of God came to Shemaiah. The man of God. Who's Shemaiah? We don't know. We don't have the slightest idea. We've got no background on the guy. Name only shows up here. You know, and so we don't know much about Shemaiah, but we do know this. He was a man of God. So Shemaiah obviously had some notoriety in Judah. I mean, you don't become a man of God unless you're speaking his word and it turns out to be true. You know what happened to those who spoke God's word and it wasn't true. They'd stone him. So Shemaiah was still there, which proves that he was a prophet of God. So we don't know much about him, but he clearly he has a reputation as a prophet. And in verse 23, God says to Shemaiah, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin. Now, Here's the first indication that we see that Benjamin and Judah are going to unite. We have 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and they're, they're going to become Judah. Say to every, to all in the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Rehoboam's actions on amassing the armies kind of make sense. You know, you would think that that's what they would do, but it's only in a worldly way. But God clearly has another plan. 
And he says all that's happened is from him. Now, very seldom do we like to think that the trouble that we run into, the dilemmas that we deal with, are from God. And the, the natural inclination is to go, and I, I've had people say it, I've thought it. Oh, well, God didn't have anything to do with this. God said, I have everything to do with it. And actually what God is trying to impress upon Rehoboam is these are the consequences for your father's falling away. You remember, Solomon began building idols, began building temples on hills that were higher than the temple mount. Furthermore, not only are these the circumstances, this, this is Rehoboam's big chance to turn around and do everything that God tells him to do. It's his opportunity to repent. But on top of all that, he's saying, Rehoboam, this is the wrong thing to do. You're supposed to be my people. God doesn't want his children squabbling with each other. They're supposed to be an image, a reflection of his presence here on earth. They're supposed to be peacemakers. They carry the blessing to the entire world. Not supposed to be a divisive group of argumentative children. Do we need to hear that today? With all the squabbling we see in the church universal? So Rehoboam listens. Wisely, he calls off the war, sends his troops home, and then... Then we turn to Jeroboam. Now, Rehoboam has said, okay, well, we're going to fight, but I'm going to listen to the word of God. I mean, finally, he makes a good and godly decision. Amen? Let's see why Jeroboam does what he does. We'll see what he does in just a second. Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. So, now, now what, when he says he built these cities, it means that he fortified them. He made them stronger. The walls were bigger. They were thicker. Uh, they had embattlements and that sort of thing. And Shechem uh, sits in a strategic location, guarding the major road that goes north and south uh, through Israel. And Penuel is in a strategic location, guarding the major road that goes east and west. So with both of those cities fortified, the entire kingdom is secure. They can defend the entire kingdom. Great idea. Defend them from who? And you would think right away the Syrians, the Ammonites, and all those, okay? Look at this, verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So whatever Jeroboam is about to do, he does because he's afraid. Now, God promised him that he would become the head of a dynasty. That there would be generations that come if he would just listen, if he would simply obey God. Jeroboam has nothing to fear. God's already made this promise. But fear gets a grip on him. Now, how does fear get a grip on us? 
You know how it happens. A thought enters your head. What if, what if this happens? And it stays there. And you, you entertain it. And it grows. And, and then you, you kind of go, oh, well, well, if that happens, what, what, what if the next thing happens? What if that happens? And, and, and all of a sudden, you're consumed by this what if. And the only remedy to that sort of thing is to compare the what if in your head to the word of God. What are God's promises to us? God promises us good things. He doesn't say that everything's going to be good. But he says that, that everything is going to happen for our good and for his glory. It, it doesn't mean that everything in life is going to be pleasant or, or palatable or easy. Some of it's going to be really hard. But we have the promise that ultimately everything will work out to our good and his glory. And sometimes we need to hold on to that. But when we start entertaining thoughts that say, oh, but that might not happen, they begin to consume us. what happened to Jeroboam what if when they go to the temple uh, they stay there what if they what if they like Rehoboam better than me again keep in mind God's blessed him this dynasty so this is why Jeroboam does what he does he's afraid He's afraid for his personal welfare. He's afraid of losing the throne that he's been given. And here's what he does in verse 28. Jeroboam's so worried that his people will travel to Jerusalem to worship. Look what he does. Verse 28. So the king took counsel. Now we watched Rehoboam take counsel. We don't know who he's taking counsel with. It doesn't tell us. But we do know this. All of those aged and wise advisors to Solomon are down in Judah. They're not up in Israel. They're not available to Jeroboam. So he takes counsel, and look at this. And he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. You don't have to go there anymore. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now, i, I got to be honest with you. There's considerable debate over what Jeroboam's doing here. And, you know, a lot of people think that he's just gone completely off the rails. And I, I, I just think that's unlikely. I don't think Jeroboam woke up, woke up and said, you know, I might lose the kingdom. I think I'll set up some idols and... You know, we'll just move completely away from God. I mean, there was division in the country. Yes, they were fighting over it. Um, the people that ended up in the northern tribes really had a good reason to complain. Uh, but they hadn't abandoned their Jewishness. They, I mean, they were sliding. They weren't doing everything they were supposed to do. But I don't really believe that all those people were ready to go, okay, we don't want to worship God anymore. We'll worship some other God. I don't think that was happening. It's just unlikely. I mean, God's speaking to Rehoboam. He's speaking to Jeroboam. Israel's struggling in their relationship, but they're not totally depraved. And they're acutely aware of the prohibition of worshiping idols. They know what the penalty is. They've seen it before. So here's, here's my take on what Jeroboam's doing. I, I, think, I think he's trying to do a good thing. 
I think he's got what he thinks is a good idea. He's not thinking these calves are idols. Not yet. He sees them as two symbols of an invisible God. He sees them as two images of the powerful one true God that Israel worships. And here's a mistake that he's making. Jeroboam's trying to blend a largely pagan symbol. And the reason he put two calves there is, number one, it's kind of a a base for the ark type thing is probably what he's thinking. Uh, But the pagan nations around them would set up animal idols as footstools for their gods. And they would say, okay, this indicates the presence of our God. And so I think Jeroboam's doing the same thing. And he's using something familiar to everyone, portraying them as a foundation for God's presence, one anchored to the north, the other anchored to the south, covering the entire nation. And and i got to be honest with you, the reason I came to this conclusion is because of what the next verse says. First the calves are fashioned, then they're presented to the people, and then verse 30 says, then, then, this thing became a sin. This happens only after the golden calves are put on display. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Now here's the struggle. And here's the danger of ascribing any symbol, any picture, any figure to represent God. People begin to worship the symbol. They turn their attention to the simple, more more than they worship God. And you've seen this sort of thing before as well. At some point, they start to ascribe power to it and presence to it. And all of a sudden, the symbol becomes more important than God himself. That happens today. I mean, you've heard things. Oh, God's doing a new thing. We've got to go to Toronto. I've been there. I've told you before. I've been there. Last time we were headed up that way, I was wondering why we had to drive so far to see Jesus. Oh, God's doing this over here. Oh, you have to have that over there. You gotta, you gotta have this book about God. I've had people tell me, I, Scripture doesn't address all my needs. I need extra biblical literature. You know, there are a lot of books that can be helpful. Even, even very helpful. But they're not the Bible. They're not the Bible. We have a tendency to find easier ways to worship God and frequently more modern ways. So instead of discouraging this type of behavior, Jeroboam said, you, you don't have to travel down to Jerusalem. You can, you can do it right, right there in Dan. You can do it right down there in Bethel. Don't have to go that far. And out of his desperation and his fear of losing his people in his life, Jeroboam tries to make it easier to worship God. Verse 31, he also made temples on high places and appointed... Now, once he starts that process, look what happens. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Now Jeroboam has his own temples. 
He's got his own temples. He's got his own worship sites. He even has his own priesthood. Significantly, the priests he chooses are not Levites. And Levites are the only ones, the only tribe in all of Israel that are appointed by God to be the priests. Now, Jeroboam is appointing his own priests. You see what he's doing? He's trying to mimic Judaism. He's making up a new type of worship by making new symbols, new places, adopting some of the old, uh, adding a little bit of the new, abandoning God's ordained ways of doing this. Maybe, maybe deep down inside Jeroboam's thinking that he can improve on the directions they've been given as far as how to worship God. What he's ignoring is that God has clearly prescribed when, where, and how his children should worship him. He's already said, here's how it's going to work. Maybe Jeroboam thinks he's doing the right thing while he's doing it. Maybe, maybe he's thinking he can do it better, adjust a little here, uh, take a little there, tweak this over here, and all of a sudden you have Judaism version 2. Judaism 2.0. The new Judaism. Well, once he gets there, the avalanche starts. Verse 32, And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. Now he has his own feasts. And then we see this. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he has made. So did, did you hear all that? Jeroboam began sacrifices. Jeroboam were making sacrifices to the calves not to God. There's a great irony here and scripture is very clear about this. Who made the calves? Jeroboam. Now he's worshiping. The scripture tells us about a man going out to the woods, taking a piece of wood, chopping it in two and using one to cook his food and the other he fashions an idol of it and then the next thing he does is he bows down and worships it. You know what the problem with that is? It sets the idol maker up as God. You're not really worshiping his idol, he's worshiping something that he created. See, when we do that in our lives, when we allow ourselves to put something in priority over God, so, yeah, we could look at Jeroboam, well, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. Who would ever worship a calf? Who would ever worship a statue of a calf? But this is what happens when we sub supplant God with a different priority. We make that our idol. And we've, we've worked hard. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our home. Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's our position. Uh, maybe it's our IRA. But all of a sudden, that becomes the most important thing in our life. And it's something that we created. The sin in the garden wasn't that they ate the forbidden fruit. It was, but... But the sin was that they thought they could be like God. If I can do that, why do I need a God? This is what Jeroboam's doing. 
He made these idols, and now he's worshiping them, sacrificing to them. Verse 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now Jeroboam is operating solely out of his own heart, solely for his own purposes. Notice there's no mention in here of prayer. There's not even a mention of God. And at this particular point in Jeroboam's life and his reign, everything he does, he does on his own. And it all began, it all began with good intentions. Good intentions when he ignored the word of God. So there's Jeroboam's fall from grace. We saw what Rehoboam does. Ultimately, he does the right thing and listens to God. He's angry. He's vengeful. He doesn't want to lose half of his kingdom. Actually, it's about three-quarters of it. And he wants to attack Jeroboam. Beat him into submission and take back what he thinks is rightfully his. That's what we need to be careful of today. Because we've got all sorts of people telling us what is rightfully ours. And we're willing to fight for it. We're willing to go out in the streets and make trouble over it. God says that's not the way we do things. That's not what I sent you here for. To fight for your rights. Look to my son. Look what he did. When all of his rights and all of his dignity was taken away from him. He surrendered. He sacrificed himself. Rehoboam hears that. He sets aside his anger and his pride, and he obeys God. I'd like that to be the end of Rehoboam's story, but it's not because he only obeys God for the time being. If you read further on, you find out that Rehoboam ultimately becomes an evil king. One of those did evil in the sight of the Lord. Because of that, Jerusalem is plundered by Shishak, the king of Egypt. And the funny thing about that was Egypt at that particular time was not a particularly strong nation. Rehoboam dies in a ruined city and as a poor and measly shadow of his father and his grandfather. We saw rock. Why? Jeroboam acts. He, initially, he does exactly the opposite of what Rehoboam does. While Rehoboam sets aside his anger, sets aside his pride, and decides to trust in God's word, Jeroboam embraces fear. He embraces doubt. Denies the promises of God and feels he has to do something to preserve himself, to protect himself. Rehoboam trusts God. Jeroboam has been given nearly everything, doesn't. And then what Jeroboam does because of that is start making up his own religion. We'll wing it, guys. I got some great ideas. People are really going to love this. And at first it looks like Judaism, but it very quickly degrades into a parody of everything that Judaism represents. It always does, doesn't it? I mean, whenever we try to add something to God's perfect plan, things go off the rails. When we try to improve upon his word, when we feel that the old ways are no longer applicable, 
I mean, we hear that all through our culture today, but we hear it a lot in the church. Oh, the old, the old ways don't work. We've got to find a new way to communicate. We've got to find a new way to get people in the church. We've got to find a new way to communicate the message of the gospel. We feel like we had to devise new ways to make the church attractive to people. And, of course, the church is modeled after a man who was a man of sorrows, trials and tribulations. So ultimately, God sends a prophet to warn Jeroboam, but he doesn't listen to the prophet. He doesn't do it. His son is weak and frail. He's got a baby and thinks you might die. Jeroboam sends his wife to Abijah, the guy that said the original prophecy over him. He's a guy that, who spoke God's word over Jeroboam, promised the kingdom, the ten tribes. If only, God, if only Jeroboam will obey God. And Ahijah prophesies destruction over Jeroboam and all of his descendants. He says, you're going to lose all this. You're not listening to the word of God. So first thing that, that happens is the child dies. And then Jeroboam dies. The kingdoms are divided. Ten tribes of the north are carried away eventually by the Assyrians. And if you know your biblical history, once they're carried away by the Assyrians, we never see them again. To this day. 3,000 years ago. And I believe, I believe that Jeroboam started out with good intentions, but his good intentions were fueled not by a godly attitude, but by fear. And he abandoned the word of God and started doing what seemed right to him, what felt right. So the, the pra pra practical lesson that we have here is, is we've got to be careful of good intentions. Good intentions, listen carefully. Good intentions never, ever evoke good memories. We don't look back on our good intentions and go, oh, gee, what a great time in our life. We're not remembered by our good intentions, brothers and sisters. We're remembered by what we do. We're remembered by the actions that we take. Isn't that exactly what's happened to Jeroboam and Rehoboam? We don't, we don't remember them for whatever their heart was motivating them. We remember them by what they did. And, and we see that because the disciples did not remember Jesus' resurrection because of his words, but because of what he did. Because of how he sacrificed himself. They remembered his words because of the resurrection. Because he came back, John 12. People remember what we do long, long after they remember what we said or what we thought. That's good. Our intentions can be good, not necessarily godly. Jeroboam's were good, but certainly not godly. Real struggle he had was acting out of fear. He was more afraid of people, more afraid of losing something than he was afraid of God. But here's the lesson we get about God. What do we carry away from this? Brothers and sisters, God knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. The prophecy didn't come out of emptiness. Rehoboam, Jeroboam were not trapped by the prophecy. 
God was just saying about them, if you do what your nature leads you to do, this is what's going to happen. This constant lesson we learn through scriptures is if we are willing to supplant our nature with our desire to be close to God, he will bless us. That's some hard work. So when we see these things, when we see Rehoboam, you're going to lose the kingdom. Jeroboam, you've got to obey me. We need to walk in those things and go, okay, what is God doing here? He's telling me to pay attention to him. He's telling me to, to listen to his word. He's telling me to obey his word. Why is he telling me that? Because he knows my heart. And he knows that when I have the opportunity to work for my own good rather than his, that I'll take it. Now, we've got an advantage that neither of those guys had. When Jesus died and ascended, he sent a helper to live in us, to guide us, to direct us, to counsel us. We have a resource that those guys didn't have. I hate to say this, but all they had was the Word. That should be enough, amen? We have the Holy Spirit to remind us of what the Word says. We have our union with Christ to remind us where we're going. What God has put together, let no man put us under. He's united us with his son. He's united us with each other. If we understand that, we'll never have a divided kingdom. We'll never find ourselves in a situation where we thought, well, I thought I was doing a good thing, and what I've discovered is I've been doing a prideful thing. God knows our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, you know. Lord, your word says that you know every blade of grass. You know when a bird falls from the sky. And Lord, we confess that there are times that we, we believe that you know all that, but we don't necessarily walk in a manner that would say that we, you know what's going on in our hearts. We give you thanks, Father, that you know us better than we even know ourselves. We give you thanks, Father, that you know that without you sovereignly sending your Son to die for our sins, that we were hopeless and helpless. And we thank you, Father, for the Spirit you've given us. We thank you for the Word you've given us, that powerful combination of the revelation of your character and nature through your Word and the the enabling of our being able to walk that out through the presence and power of your Spirit. Sends us to our knees, Father. We thank you that you know our hearts and love us anyway. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. 
Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.